Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. I've got another big show for you today. First up, a discussion about a new book on girls' education. Second, one of our previous expert guests answers a listener's question. Remember, you can email questions to me at bcp at brookings.edu, and I'll get them answered by guests on upcoming shows. And last, the second installment of our new Steve Hess story series, in which a veteran staffer of the Eisenhower and Nixon administrations and an expert on the presidency and politics talks about his life and work. And now on with the show. First up, here's my colleague, Bill Finan, speaking with Rebecca Winthrop, Senior Fellow and Director of the Center for Universal Education and co-author of a new book titled, What Works in Girls' Education? Thank you, Fred. Hello, Rebecca. Your new book has a forward by Malala Yousafzai, the Nobel Peace Prize winner. She's probably the most visible example of girls' education and a great champion of it. She says in her forward to the book that the world cannot achieve a sustainable, peaceful, and prosperous future without investing in girls' education. Why is girls' education so central to a prosperous global future? I am so glad you asked that question. That was one of the motivating factors for both Jean Sperling and I, um, who co-authored this book with me, to write this book because there is increasing attention in girls' education. um, And we want to um, share that message even more widely with those uh, who might be interested but don't know a lot about it. Um, And we did a massive trawling of the research over the last several decades. And came to the conclusion, which ultimately became the subtitle for the book, The World's Best Investment, that girls' education really is quite unique in terms of in any of interventions that you can do, not because it's a silver bullet. There are no such things as silver bullets, but certainly in developing country contexts especially, it has so many high returns across such a wide variety of areas important for society. So it's really important for um, better paying jobs and wages for women. It's there's been a lot of research over over time, some contested, but around economic growth. But people are more familiar with that. Girls' education seems to be really good for reducing infant child mortality, for um, reducing child uh, forced child marriage, for empowering women, for in- improving agricultural yields, for reducing family size, and the list goes on. So an earlier edition of this book came out about a decade ago. Um what prompted you to put out a new edition? And I'm going to add on another question at the same time. What new, what changes have you seen in, in, in a nutshell too in that decade on the positive side, let's say? So when this book came out, it was put out by Jean Sperling and Barbara Hertz uh, as one of the um, initial publications out of the Center for Universal Education over a decade ago. And at that time, the girls' education movement was not nearly so prominent in terms of broad public awareness of the topic. It was a it was a sort of very targeted volume over a decade ago that pulled what literature did exist on girls' education interventions in developing countries um, and pulled it all into one place. And a lot of practitioners and policymakers who wanted to get a quick overview of it and, and be pointed to what, what the evidence said found it very useful. Um, so now, fast forward uh, over a decade later, girls' education has taken on a lot more prominence and For us, we really wanted to make sure that people knew the evidence behind what worked. So as there's increasing momentum, which you just opened with in the discussion of Malala Yousafzai winning the Nobel um, Peace Prize, and people are 
saying, what can I do? They'll at least have a good user friendly, easy to navigate desk reference to orient them to the issues and to figure out where to invest their money so that they can have an impact. This is a book about global, it's a book with a global view. It's not just focused on any one area. And what parts of the world have seen the greatest gains in girls' education? It's a good uh, question. And it is a book with a global view. And we've seen actually huge there's a lot of huge gains in girls' education. There's a lot to celebrate. Over the last 20 years, half the number of girls who, you know, the number of girls who've been out of school have been cut in half. Um, women and adolescents, girls have doubled the amount of years they average in school. So there's lots of good progress. Um, Asia has seen lots of success. Latin America has seen lots of success. Many parts of Africa um, and the Middle East also, although I would say that there are still some very um, difficult contexts for girls in terms of getting access to quality schooling. A lot of them are in sub-Saharan Africa. A lot of them are in Southwest Asia. Why do you think there has been progress in some areas of the world and, and, and not so much in some other areas? Yeah, it's something that we when we call, when we looked across the evidence really about um you know why is girls education important what are the returns what are what is the story behind girls education what you know over the last several decades what what were girls facing um you know 20 30 years ago what are they facing now and what works to to um help them get a good quality education which was sort of the three big questions of the book the second question about the story of girls education over the last couple decades really 20 years ago 25 years ago Girls' education was an issue in every single country in the world, meaning that most countries in the world faced a deficit between the number of boys who enrolled in school and the numbers of girls who enrolled in school. There has been a massive push, particularly over the last 20 years and especially the last 15 with the Millennium Development Goals, to make sure that at primary school level, girls and boys are enrolled in equal numbers. So that has been a, a huge amount of... Um, effort that countries have invested in, that external donors have invested in, that civil society advocates have invested in, um, and countries that have put a lot of effort into that have made a lot of progress. Um, there are countries where um, that progress has has happened, but not as quickly because they haven't invested in as much. But also there's been countervailing wins, I would say, to the girls' education movement in those countries. And so what we found is that there's a couple, you know, we really pulled out sort of five big problems that now the girls' education community needs to tackle if we want to go this last mile and reach these last number of girls. So it sounds like you're optimistic about the future. I am um, optimistic, although it is a long slog. So we're going to have to make sure, you know, that from here on out, we do a much better job of focusing in on the safety of girls. This is a huge issue. Malala, of course, made mm -hmm. famous by being attacked because she was going to school. But that's she's not um, one of a handful. She's one of many many girls who are attacked because they're going to school. We also have to make sure, secondly, that girls, just like boys, are learning really learning really well while they're there. The quality of education has to improve. And then we also need to make sure that they transition to the workforce. Rebecca, thank you very much for joining us today. Congratulations on the publications and publication of the new volume, too. Thank you for having me. You can buy the book or download it on our website, brookingsaedu. Just search for What Works in Girls' Education.
I've invited you to send questions to my guests via the email bcp at brookings.edu. Here's a question I got from listener David R. for Bill Fry about generations. David asks, There is often mention of the cohort of the baby boomers, and the host mentions that his is the Generation X cohort. But I wonder what statistical evidence might there be to actually define subsequent generations or cohorts or whatever you might call them since the baby boom. There does seem to be a distinct birth rate pattern up until 1964 to define the baby boom, but since then, terms like Gen X, Gen Y, Echo Boomers, Millennials, all seem to be coined without any real definition or basis. Or is there? Other than some cultural markers, what can be said to define post-baby boom generations, if anything? Well, David, here's Bill with the answer. Thank you for the question. Uh, you know, I think the most well-defined generation that everybody knows and can uh, uh, recite uh, is, is, is the baby boom generation. The baby boom generation is distinct for a lot of reasons. One is because it's such a huge generation, uh, a large number of births, 76 million of them, uh, between 1946 and 1964, on the heels of, 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 a, of, a, of a generation that was relatively small. Many of them were born during the Depression. And, uh, you know, at the time, that baby boom generation, aside from being that huge generation, also was uh, culturally distinct. Uh, you want to think about the Woodstock generation, for example. All of the sort of countercultural uh, pushbacks against tradition that these young people who were born at the end of World War II, after World War II, up through the mid-1960s, uh, brought to life. And, uh, you know, if you think of the baby boom generation going forward, uh, the, the role they played in the women's movement, the role they played in, uh, in um, racial equity, uh, all of the 60s movements were helped to be amplified by this baby boom generation, who were then of the age, uh, the oldest ones going to college, but even some of the younger ones uh, sort of brought some new life to all of these movements in the United States. And you know, a lot of the music of that generation still exists today. Uh, you go to elevators and you can hear it and hear it in the elevators. And, and uh, you know, the baby boomers are still a huge market in the United States. And so, uh, you know, the baby boom, that's, that's an easy one to answer. What about the baby boom generation? But, but what about the generation since then? There, it's a little bit fuzzier. I think the Generation X... Uh, which began around 1965 up through uh, the late 70s. Sometimes some people say 1975, some people say 1980. Um, a smaller number of years, a smaller number of people. As the, the baby boom women went into the labor market in big numbers, they had fewer children, and that's part of this generation. Uh, but also culturally, I think they were a little bit um, less, you know, subversive, you could say. <laughs> I think they were a little bit more followed the mold, followed the bureaucracy, tried to get ahead as well as they could, although they were a smaller generation, didn't have the same flair or the numbers of the baby boom generation. So that culturally, it's hard to kind of pinpoint a couple of things about the Generation X uh, that are nearly as distinct as the baby boom generation. I think a lot of generations, all, Generation Xers always felt that they were in the shadow uh, of the baby boom generation. Uh, but then we get to the millennial generation. And, you know, you can hardly pick up a newspaper any day or turn on a TV show without having some discussion of the millennial generation. Who are they? What do they think? How are they going to change the country and all of that? 
there's a little bit of fuzziness about when they started too. Uh, some people think 1980 or 1982 is probably one of those years is when they began. It's a defining mark of when the first millennial was born. And there's also fuzziness about when it's ended or if it's ended. Uh, but right now, uh, probably you can think of millennials of people aged 18 to 35 in the United States, sort of young adults, uh, late teenagers, young adults. And, uh, you know, they are uh, a big generation. They're as big, in fact, now bigger than the baby boom generation. But they're not all because of they were babies. <laughs> uh, part of the growth of the millennial generation in numbers comes from immigration, which is much bigger during this period, the period where we are defining the birth of the millennial generation, uh, than was the case when the baby boomers were coming along. So uh, as a result, and certainly as a result of the huge diversity in the United States, uh, the millennial generation is not only big in numbers, but very distinct in terms of its racial makeup, about 40 or 45 percent, depending on how you count the in beginning and end of the millennial generation, are racial minorities, many a uh, big number of Hispanics in the U.S., uh, much different uh, than the baby boom generation and, and more diverse, really, than Generation X. They're also distinct in lots of other ways. Um, they tend, uh, you know, they tend to be kind of a tech generation in terms of social media generation. They also tend to be civic-minded, but not uh, falling into bureaucratic type of uh, uh, type of uh, paths to the future. In other words, they kind of eschew traditional uh, bureaucracies, traditional structures. They're more secular. They're not as religious as earlier generations. And uh, you know, unfortunately for them, uh, for they've been hit very hard uh, by the recession, and so many of them, it's still staying at home, uh, putting their careers on hold, putting the idea of getting married on hold. But I think people see them as being able to adapt, to go with the flow, perhaps different than Generation X, which are much more conventional in the way they work their, their futures. And I think people see that this millennial generation, because of all these new attributes, because they're secular, because they're more diverse, because they're more socially progressive, they're also, many more of them are, are independents rather than Democrats or Republicans, uh, that they're going to start a wave of a new way of, of thinking when, they, when many more of them become mainstream, because when they become middle-aged, when they become managers, become, become more pillars of society, will change societies in lots of different ways. So like the baby boom generation, it's not just numbers for them, but it also has to do with their very different cultural attributes. So uh, it's both. It's numbers and cultural attributes. And I think of all the generations that I've known in my lifetime, uh, this millennial generation is as close to making a biggest change in the country as the baby boom generation was. Thanks, Bill. You can listen to Bill's episode on America's Diversity Explosion from November 14th, 2014. And now the second installment of Steve Hess Stories. In part one, we learned how Steve came to research and start writing the best-selling book, America's Political Dynasties, while he was in the Army, stationed in Germany. In part two, Steve takes us back to his roots in Manhattan during the presidency of Franklin Roosevelt and World War II. I was born a month after Franklin Delano Roosevelt became president of the United States in, uh, in 1933 and grew up in, in New York City in Manhattan. And so that means that my youth was originally in the Depression uh, and after that during World War II. Uh, my father <clears throat> had an automobile agency, so it wasn't a very good time to to have that business since people weren't buying cars at a depression and then comes the war, there were, there were uh, no cars to be bought. Uh, but it's amazing as I think back, uh, I never knew we, we were 
poorer than other people in any way. Maybe we weren't. Uh, because New York had so much to offer for free. Uh, we took advantage of it. I remember we got tickets to the to Arturo to Arturo Toscanini and the NBC Symphony. Uh, and all you had to do was write for tickets and you could go to concerts, museums. I had a wonderful, a, a wonderful youth. Uh, I played stickball on 98th Street and, and Broadway. And when any car came by, we just stopped the game. Uh, went to school from 98th Street down to 64th Street on a on a uh, trolley car that ran right up the middle of of Broadway, uh, and uh, I can remember my um, my first president. My first president was uh, Franklin Roosevelt looking out the window in 1944 when he was running for re-election. I, we lived on the ninth floor, looking down, and there he was in the rain coming down Broadway, uh, waving. I remember it clearly. Uh, what I didn't know, until <clears throat> of course many, many years later, was this was actually a rather historic and important moment, because this was a man who was dying, running for office, and trying to prove to the electorate that he was in good health. Uh, I didn't know that it, at 96th Street, he took a right, went into a garage, uh, got uh, rubbed down, had some cognac, and kept going on his way. Of course, he was dead by uh, by by April. Um, so that was my first exposure to a real president, my first exposure to the idea of a president, I must have come in second grade. I can remember having a big fight with my friend Herb Kaufman over the election. Uh, he was uh, for Wilkie. I was for Roosevelt. Neither one of us had the faintest idea of why we were for anybody other than probably our parents were. Uh, but that that shows about when most people second grade, third grade, start to have some sense of leadership uh, and, and the presidency. Actually, um, there were some politicians of source in my family, uh, which is why I lean that way, perhaps. Uh, I have a, a great uncle, Henry Moskowitz, who wrote the campaign biography for Alfred Smith when he ran for president in 1928. I sort of love that because I wrote a, a biography of, of Nixon in 1968 uh, when he was running for president. But the really important politician in the family was not blood relation, but was Henry's wife, Bill Moskowitz. Bill Moskowitz, and there's even a biography of her, uh, she turned out to be one of the leading uh, advisors to Al Smith, who of course became uh, governor of New York before he ran for president. And uh, I never met her. She died before I was born. But I learned something just about stereotypes or prejudice because I just assumed here there's this woman who was so powerful uh, that she must have been a real battle axe of a woman fighting for her rights. And then this biography came out, and it turned out that she was a woman who sat in the corner during cabinet meetings knitting. Everybody shot off their mouths, and the governor turned to her and said, uh, uh, Mrs. M., what do you think? Uh, so an entirely different image and needn't have been battle axe at all, and apparently, and apparently she she wasn't. But I must say, uh, since I've written a book about families, families are fascinating, uh, and uh, it's forced me from time to time to look into my own family, and have found one quite remarkable person who was a uh, a aunt of my mother's. Uh, and uh, we didn't know too much about that part of the family because uh, my mother's uh, my mother's mother died in childbirth, and she was raised uh, by her uh, her father's 
family, but it turned out that she had uh, an aunt. Her name was Rose Livingston, and I would see her as a child. I have vague remembrances of her coming and the two of them sitting and talking in the kitchen, having having tea. She was a little old lady who wore uh, very uh, very starch suits, and my mother told tales about her that I didn't quite believe. Uh, but only a, a few months ago, I thought I'd look her up. And I found an article. Now we can find anything. It's a marvelous world where we go into the internet and find anything. I found an article about her in the New York Times, quite a large article from 1912. And it turned out that my mother's great aunt was known as the Angel of Chinatown. She was paid, uh, she was a social worker as such, I think she was paid by some philanthropists, rich people, and she would go into into the brothels of Chinatown to, to, to try to bring the women out. And the article that was about her said she had rescued uh, thir 33 women uh, that year. Uh, and wow, hey, I'm related to her. Get more Steve Hess stories on our SoundCloud channel and learn more about his book at brookings.edu slash political dynasties. And that's all for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria. Stay tuned for our next episode, A Year in Review, where I'll present the best from the Brookings Cafeteria in 2015. My thanks to our audio engineer and producer, Zach Colzer, with editing help from Mark Holscher, artist Jessica Pavone, and online support team of Carissa Nitschi, Rebecca Weiser, Eric Abalahan, and our intern, Karen Welgurgis. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes, listen on Stitcher, and remember to send feedback email to me at bcp at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.